0: Hello and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 39. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week we're going to change things around a bit. I've got some Drabble news for you folks, but I thought it'd be more poignant to do it after this week's story. You'll see why. This week we bring you... The Beekeepers by J. Allen Pierce. Mr. Pierce has appeared in several different print and online markets, including the Drabblecast. You may remember his story, The One That Got Away, back in June as Drabblecast 18, which allowed me the pleasure of reading the line, Oh hell no, Marty, I ain't touchin' no mur, baby. You should check it out, it's in our archive. So, without further ado, The Beekeepers by J. Allen Pierce. I didn't know where to begin at first. It's been my job to translate and organize a vast amount of data from all over the world. There are a lot of conflicting stories about how exactly it happened, and that's part of what makes my research so difficult. But it's necessary work to let an entire civilization die and not construct an accurate record of the nature of its extinction? That would be an atrocity. I'll start with what I know for sure the first documented report of the Tadix infection, a clinic in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The man, one Hector Melania, came in with numerous open lesions on his back. He said that he'd first noticed the sores one week earlier and that they had since multiplied. Complaining of thick, onion-colored worms living in the sores, he was diagnosed with a strange parasitic infection of unknown origin. The worms were extracted, and the lesions were treated. Two nights later, he died. I still haven't been able to identify the first person to make the connection between the virus and the parasites. The parallel was fairly evident. Those who got the worms got the fever. I imagine it's possible that people figured it out on their own. The rate of infection is also hard to gauge early on because the virus spreads and replicates itself with such staggering speed and efficiency. The pathogen was popping up and sweeping through parts of Northern Argentina, Paraguay, and Bolivia within a day or two of the this Paulo case. That's the thing about the tatics, they're so damn speedy. Scientists can't ever keep up, and people never know what hit them. I do know that it was an epidemiologist from Brown University, Dr. Philip Katzen, whose research on several different infected populations in South America led him to publish an article called Dermatobia Hominis as Vector of Santos Hemorrhagic Fever. In this article, aside from erroneously citing Santos, Brazil as the epidemic's place of origin, Katzen noted that the hemorrhagic fever sweeping through Central South America was caused by an undocumented form of phylovirus. The viral vector was a fascinating parasitic wasp that deposited its eggs underneath the host's skin. His most baffling discovery, however, was that Santos fever, a grisly and rapid killer with no known treatment, was not lethal in all cases. Several hundred people in remote villages throughout Bolivia and Paraguay were diagnosed with the unknown phylovirus, but did not show any symptoms of Santos fever. Every hospital in almost every city within Central South America was filling up with pitiful souls who were hemorrhaging blood from every orifice, moaning through drug-induced stupors, literally coming apart, bleeding and melting into the linens of their hospital beds. Yet these remote villagers, aside from having to cope with a rather uncomely insect infestation, went about their daily lives as if there were no crisis at all. The key difference was that the villagers, because of their remoteness and poverty, had been unable to receive treatment for their parasites. Katzen concluded that the viral vector, a stout gray and black wasp that seemed to come out of nowhere, was imposing on a large and unfortunate population of people one of the most amazing and complex symbiotic relationships ever encountered. Those stung by the wasp were made host to its offspring, a larva which grew to about three inches long under the skin, all the while anchoring itself in with spiny hooks and feeding on surrounding tissue. Eventually, the larva would drop from the lesion into the soil, where it would burrow down and enter its pupa stage before emerging as another full-grown wasp. To ensure the success of this life cycle, the insect seemed to have, at some point, acquired a mutualistic relationship with a nasty virus that was also looking for a way to infect more hosts. Katzen noted, with astonishment, that the larva seemed to produce antibodies that kept the virus at bay in the victim. If the infected person removed the parasites, they took away the source of antigens that the larva was pumping into the host's bloodstream, giving the virus free reign to lay waste in the form of what Katzen called Santos hemorrhagic fever. From what I can tell, Katzen's report was met with incredulity by most of the scientific community. At first. A new species of parasitic wasp? An unheard-of virus? A complex cooperative relationship between them both that seemed to have developed overnight? No one took Katzen's findings seriously, and the problem remained an enigma. That is, until the virus became airborne. The Tadix, or ring wasps, as they were called at that time, had another ace up the sleeve, an enzyme signal that prompted a series of physical transformations in the virus. It seemed that the Tadix were unhappy with their current population of hosts and wanted to expand their kingdom. They figured that the easiest way to do this was to make the virus resilient to adverse air qualities and compliant to the human respiratory system. The Tadex are masters of alchemy, and it did not take them long to figure out how to transform the virus. Once they did, they increased their distribution capacity worldwide. Now the infected had only a few days to find a ring wasp before Santos' fever completely unraveled them. (laughs) The wasps wanted room service. They wanted their hosts to come find them. I must take a moment to apologize. I often catch myself referring to the Taitics as if they were something more than simple insects, as if they were calculating sentient beings. It's the way that they adapt, the efficiency and speed that they exploit other environmental systems, the high levels of organization that they display. Those who first studied the Tatiks asserted, with some awe, that the Tatiks were not creative beings capable of abstract thought. They were but a force of nature, operating under her principles with unprecedented success. These researchers were correct, of course, but perhaps modest in their conclusions. The Tatiks are not simply forces of nature, you see. They are the cold and relentless masters of it. Weeks after the virus went airborne, almost every newspaper in the world was filled with headlines about the ring wasp, the virus, and what their governments were planning to do about it. In just over two months, the overlooked South American epidemic had become a pandemic, a global crisis with only one horrible treatment option. The first immunization clinic went up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, after a reported 28 million people in North and South America were killed by Santos fever. That number seems huge until you read about how it affected the Asian continent once the virus found its way across the Pacific. It's hard to convey with words the type of world that I see in all of these photographs. Nations on the verge of war over wasp cargoes, Malicious acts of unspeakable human depravity as some governments hoarded the insects as commercial items and charged astronomical prices for them. Endless lines of sick and bleeding men, women, and children waiting outside immunization clinics for their treatment. Children crying as physicians administered the bulbous, hairy insect to their trembling backs, ignoring their sobs, waiting for the stinger to push deep into warm, healthy, young flesh. Riots. Violence. So many people panicking and dying. However, of all these images, perhaps the worst photo I've come across is of one man perhaps in his mid-thirties, dressed in slacks and a pressed white shirt, sitting at a small outdoor table, drinking a cup of coffee and reading a newspaper. The pus running from a sore on his left cheek shimmers in the afternoon sun. Dark spots can be seen bleeding through his expensive shirt where additional sores weep and adhere to the fabric. Peppered throughout the photograph, On the restaurant walls, windows, tables, on the man's pants, in his hair, are thousands of Tatiks, the ring wasps. The tragedy, the thing that really moves me when I see this photograph, is the acceptance of a fate so odious, so abominable. It's the image of a world that had survived a crisis only to find stability again in a place that was vile and unrecognizable, a place no longer their own. Imagine what it must have been like for children to start going back to school, trying to make sense of algebra while brushing Tadix flies off their homework. I think about lovers, their bodies tangled in intimate knots, how they surely must have winced every time their lips or hands accidentally brushed against the inflamed, glistening larval pits of their partners during sex. Surely those that died before the Tatex vaccine were the better off. I don't mean to convey the idea that humanity had accepted a destiny as slaves to the Tatex. I have found countless records of scientific studies and medical journals dedicated to finding an antivirus or a way to artificially synthesize the antigens that the Tatix larva produced. When the United States stock market finally got back on its feet, investors weren't buying shares of Microsoft or Coca-Cola anymore. The market was mostly comprised of competing corporations, funding or conducting research on the virus and the insect. I imagine the idea was that the first company to replicate the Tadix antigen would not only save humanity, but also make a killing doing so. Maybe it was a case of mass post-traumatic stress disorder, or maybe people were just so wrapped up in finding another cure. I can only speculate at this point as to why it took everyone so long to start noticing the dreams it's hard to find data on the early investigations. Something called patient confidentiality. I'm sure people were going to therapists and psychologists about the dreams for a while, but there just isn't any early documentation of it published. The first case study I've come across was by a Dr. Pamela Stein, a psychologist with no previous achievements in the field. Stein, through a series of tests that involved the reading and recording of brainwave activity during REM sleep, discovered universal patterns in a group of 30 volunteer patients. She then told the world what they already knew but had been too afraid to ask or hear. Everyone was having the same dreams. Not all at the same time, of course, and not even every night but frequent enough to be more than just a coincidence. After the dream phenomena was made public, people were, as you might expect, unnerved. The media was filled with theories. Clergymen claimed that the dreams were God communicating with his people. Conspiracy theorists claimed that the dreams were caused by some rival government using the public as guinea pigs in some secret experiment. Everyone who had the courage to speculate did so. The predominant theory, from what I can tell, was that the dreams were caused by the virus, some reaction or side effect. That theory, as we know now, was the closest. I should mention at this point that I'm really only giving you an outline of my full report. While there are gaps in the story that I'll no doubt need to investigate further, in general there's no shortage of data on the matter. The problem is quite the opposite, actually. The enormity of materials and information that I have to wade through is enough to overwhelm any historian. Add to that the responsibility of having to compile an accurate narrative of these events as the final testament of an entire civilization. And you might understand why I can't sleep at night. It's either that, or it's the fact that I too have the dreams. But I know what they mean. But I digress. I must, for obvious reasons, let the record show that it was one Karl Weber, a professor of entomology at the University of Munich, who first proposed that it was actually the ring wasps who were responsible for the dreams, not the virus. Drawing from several case studies outlining the form of the universal dreams, Weber made connections with patterns found in the dance language of Western honeybees, a system of movements that the bees performed to communicate with each other. One characteristic of the dreams, as you know, of course, is the distinct feeling of motion, the vague impression of navigating through a course of directions. Weber, with surprising accuracy, charted the dream dance and made a startling comparison to the gestures that honeybee scouts make when communicating where a food source is to the rest of the hive. The public, with fatal skepticism, dismissed Weber's study completely. His work was not in vain, though. His discovery and namesake will live on with me and the texts that I write chronicling the conquests of the Tatiks. As I said earlier, the Tatiks move so damn fast, scientists can't ever keep up, and populations never know what hit them. We sure didn't. But then, I guess speed is also what ended up saving us. You see, we were the first race the Tatex had encountered that had developed faster than light travel. Prior to us, we think the Tadex found their way to different planets the same way that they came to yours and ours, by traveling for eons and various solid rock formations, comets, asteroids, shards of broken and conquered planets. The Tadex pupa would remain curled up and asleep inside some burning or frozen stone, waiting patiently, indefinitely, until the vessel collided with another solid body. Not very efficient, especially for a species that prides itself on efficiency. I imagine that most of the time, the pupa would either burn up in the descent to the planet's atmosphere or were destroyed upon impact. But occasionally they would make successful contact and even less occasionally, they would find some sort of life form on that planet. I shudder to speculate about their origins. How many Tatyx pupa must still be out there, orbiting different systems or rocketing wildly through space? Our race has been transporting the hive for only a few thousand years, and from what our dream analysts and navigators tell us, there are still countless civilizations out there infected with tatex. Lonely, isolated worlds that are calling out to the growing hive that lives in us and through us. They dance in our dreams. They send us coordinates. They call out, come to us. We are ready. There is food here. I never knew my world. I have never known a life without the tatics. It is said that when they came to our planet long ago, They conquered us by water, through our rivers, our oceans, our rain. This is all we know. We were not as fortunate as you. We did not have others recording and studying our satellite signals from afar, chronicling the machinations of our demise. We were fortunate enough to have survived, though. That proficiency in specialized exploitation that the Tadex demonstrated while destroying us. Is also what saved us from annihilation. Something in them realized that they could benefit from our survival. We could spread them throughout the stars, we could pollinate them. Our ancestors, then, are the few naturally selected remnants of a species that figured out, just in time, that there was but one way to survive to abandon home and follow the dreams. This all seems implausible, I I know. The universe would be brimming with implausible things, though, if only there were a brim to the universe. Think of your malaria and her mosquito, your orchid and her crane fly, the chameleon's tongue, the whale's song, the nativity of instinct, the phenomena of adaptation, the method of evolution, and the technique of survival. No force is greater than these timeless mechanisms and designs of nature. And the Tatex, they are nature's magnum opus, an experiment of nature that will undo all things through its very success. As we approach your blue planet, I look at your world your cultures, your people, your past. The Hive is within us, they are all around us, preparing to descend upon you in a number that your mathematics has yet to measure. I write these words to once again preserve a civilization met and conquered by the Taitics. You are not the first we have brought them to, and you will certainly not be the last. The Tatics do not take pleasure in this world-conquering, in this undoing of all things, nor do they feel remorse. They are salmon swimming upstream, they are seeds disseminating in the wind. It is a mistake to refer to the Tatics as creatures of volition, though I am guilty of that myself. They raise empires to the ground, they snuff out all living things, but it is we that bear the burden of evil. It is we that have chosen to carry their death to other worlds so that we may live. It is we that have the yoke of free will, we that have to adapt to be able to live with ourselves. We have made our ships into libraries, and we have become historians. In this, we have found purpose again. We will record your culture in the tablet of things that have been, we will safeguard your past, cherish your memories, and after your planet is stripped of everything but rock, long after your bones have become sand, you will not be forgotten. It is through us that you shall be preserved, and it is through you that we shall be redeemed. Check this. CBC News, September 19, 2007. Hundreds of people flocked to get medical treatment after an apparent meteorite crashed in a remote part of southern Peru over the weekend, health officials said. The fiery ball that witnesses say fell from the sky Saturday morning smashed into the Andean Plain near the Bolivian border, leaving a crater 30 meters wide and 6 meters deep. About 600 people sought medical treatment after visiting the site, authorities say. Jorge Lopez, the health director in Puno, says most complained of headaches, vomiting, and nausea that they believe was caused by noxious fumes from the crater. A local resident told the BBC that the object is buried in the ground. Eh, este this is why we're asking for an investigative, investigative analysis. analysis. Health officials porque are trying to cover this up, but we're all pretty sure it's an alien virus. That will be rapido. the death of us all. This happened back in September, and the Peruvian Health Agency has since attributed the symptoms to the emanation of gases of a sulfurous nature that irritates the nasal passages of those near the site of the meteor. Mm-hmm. Regardless of if those haughty, toddy, know know-it-all health agency folks are right, and it really was about sulfurous irritants released from the earth, or if they're wrong and we're all about to get attacked by swarms of alien locusts, I just thought the coincidence was neat right down to the meteorite landing in the same part of the world. We received this submission from Mr. Pierce about one week before the meteorite actually hit. You can find a link to this story, as well as some chat about stories and other podcasts, by joining our discussion forums, a link to which you can find on our website at www.travelcast.org. And while we're talking about the forums, let's do some quick feedback on episode 34. The Suit by G.W. Thomas. Derm said, Nice story, and good characterization. I liked the build-up, but I felt it could have ended just before the first-person stuff without loss of impact. This last isn't a criticism, as I don't think the ending harmed the piece. Philippa brought up a good point, saying, I enjoyed this story a great deal. It really crept up on me, but only because I was listening on my iPod and didn't catch the name of the story or see the image on the podcast page until afterwards. What a giveaway! I'm always so disappointed when the title gives away the punchline. I feel cheated of my surprise, and I suspect the visual clue would have left little room for suspense. For me, suspense of the story wasn't lessened by the title, but it's a valid point. There were also some interesting thoughts on the story's conclusion, but you should go read that for yourself on the forums. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can't sell it or change it, but you can propagate it and infect any other host organisms that you want with it. If you're a writer, read our submission guidelines on the main page and send your stories of 1-2,000 to 2,000 words to drabblecast at yahoo.com. Drabblecast relies on your donations to pay our authors and to keep this ship afloat, so consider donating a few bucks via our PayPal button on the website. Our staff is made up of one Kendall Marchman, whose noted research in the Divinity School at Vanderbilt University has yet to result in conclusive evidence or a real job. And also one Luke Coddington, whose aptitude for fly fishing has been met with fatal skepticism by the public. Oh, and I'm Norm Sherman, the podcast host afflicted with a bothersome tendency to plug his comedy CD at www.normsherman.com. Com. Sleep tight, and don't let the bed bugs bite. Or broadcast back to their hive via your dreams. Sits Lance Fernandez, the boss, and as women surround him like clothing, all tussled and ready to toss, all tussled and ready to toss.